Blessed Lord, you've caused Holy, Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so learn, hear, read, and mark, and inwardly digest, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Do you have any extra handouts? I didn't get one. Oh, yes. Or you see. I do. <laughs> Everybody else. Go. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming out. Um, the hope, because, uh, the primary target is Unity Union Church, but I thought this would be a good thing to open up to anyone in the area that wanted to come. So thank you, Ashlyn. For- <laughs> 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 um, uh, part of it is to get um, us as a church um, kind of all on the same page about what, what the church is and how, how, sh- uh, how we should function within the church. And so tonight, um, this will be the first night of, of four-week uh, sessions, um, and so we're going to frame our discussion about the church uh, using three of the primary analogies that were given in Scripture about what the church is, how, how the New Testament uh, categorizes the church, and then use those analogies to then kind of work into three, uh, in those three broad categories and be able to kind of use those as our anchor points, and then reach out through other parts of Scripture um, and church history and understand how has the church understood herself in light of Scripture and, uh, and how that should govern the way we treat ourselves within the church and, and understand the church. And so those, the three things that you'll see on your outline that we'll talk about is the church as a kingdom, the church as a temple, and the church as an olive tree. And... Uh, and these identities <clears throat> will root us in the Old Covenant and then up through the New Covenant. Um, and so primarily we're going to understand the church as the people of God. So that the church is the people that have heard the word of God and have received it by faith. That is the church. It is, it is the, the corporate body of people that belong to God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, so starting from Adam until the end of the ages. Um, and this is how the church has understood herself, and this is how the Bible understands the church. And so that's, that's you know, if we're talking like baseline definition, we could just end there, right? You know, what is the church? It's the people of God, and then end of discussion. Um, but that's, that's a, a definition that leaves room for interpretation, and sometimes those interpretations can get uh, a little hairy. So the first thing we'll look at is the church as a kingdom of, uh, as a kingdom and so we'll start at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, where John is given a vision of Cademan. Thanks for showing up. So this is Cademan, everyone. Uh, so Cademan is the pastoral intern from Georgia that will be with us for a couple weeks at the end of June or first weeks of July. Um, so right now he's been spending most of his time with Christ the King. Um, uh, but he's, he's going to try to join us for these sessions when he's able to. 
All right, so uh, we're in Revelation 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21. Um, I do have actually a whole bunch of Bibles that have not made their way to the Thank you. Well, it's because you've hid the word in your heart, so you just have it all memorized. That's uh, me. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you, Brittany. So Brittany's gonna, got some uh, Bibles she'll hand out to everyone. Um, those will make their way into the pew at some point uh, in the future. <laughs> That's an overachiever. That's right. Poetic. All right, so we're in Revelation 21. Um, Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible. That's the New Testament, Caden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John. So John's uh, being given another vision from Jesus. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. Sorry, my Bible has these articles inserted between pages. Um, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Arrayed with God's glory, her radiance was like precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with twelve gates, twelve angels were at the gates, and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod. To measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth 
chrysoprase, the 11th jacinth, the 12th amethyst, the 12 gates and the 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and the lamp is, it is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be closed by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so um, a few things that are happening here. Uh, major, major kind of motifs is that you're getting all this temple, tabernacle, priestly imagery as painted and ascribed to the church. Right, so this is when he, he sees the city, he sees the New Jerusalem, and he's told, this is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We know from Ephesians, the wife of the Lamb, the wife of Christ is the church. And so the city, kingdom, bridal imagery oftentimes will overlap, right? Do you have temple imagery overlapping here? So it's, this is, in ways, the church's identity is similar to the identity of God, where it's Trinitarian. So you have God, you have one God in three persons. And to try to distinguish those persons from the others is dangerous because you're going to end up doing something strange like creating a like three gods, or you're going to create a modalist system where you have one god with three masks, right? So there's this mystery where if you push too hard on one analogy, you end up having two other analogies pop up, right? And so the analogies will overlap, and so we'll try to kind of carefully parse what is what are the kingdom aspects of the church, and what does that mean for the church to be a kingdom? Um, so there's just some remarks there. But for example, you know you have these these twelve uh, these twelve stones. Those are the same stones that are on the high priests. Um, vestments uh, in Exodus. So the same stones that are put there. There's one stone that's got a slightly different name. I forget which stone that is, but essentially you have the same 12 stones. So the, the, the bride is given the same adornment that the priesthood was given. Uh, and we're, this is reinforced in First Peter uh, when the church is referred to as a royal priesthood. Okay? And so We'll talk about the priesthood uh, when we discuss the temple aspects of the church. But for now, we want to realize that you have all these mutual reinforcing points that you have this kingdom, this city, this holy city that's set apart, that's ruled by her king, and that other kings are paying tribute to it, that have become vassal states to the one true kingdom. And so the, this means, what this means is that um, there's a lot of a lot of parallel and analogy you can draw and we can pull off of a lot of wisdom from the Old Covenant Kingdom when we're thinking about the church. Right? So there are certain things that the apostles are going to assume and not they're not going to necessarily restate what it means for the church to be a kingdom. They'll insert kingdom motifs. They'll talk about the church as a kingdom and you expecting you to know, yeah, because we already spent you know, 40 some odd books in the Old Covenant discussing what it means for the church to be what what the kingdom is, what God's kingdom looks like, and this is this is the anticipation of many of Israel when Jesus shows up is that He's going to reassert the kingdom, and He tells them, "I am, but my kingdom isn't what you think it is. I'm not coming in with AK-47s to overthrow Herod. That's not what I'm doing. I'm coming with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and I'm going to bring a different kind of life, a life that can't be snuffed out by AK-47s." 
right? <clears throat> and so the understanding of kingdom is just inferring, just assumed that there is continuity happening between what it means for him to be the son of David that sits on the throne forever, which is promised to David, and him actually doing that. So a few things that we want to have in mind here as, um, as recognizing the church as the continuation of the kingdom of Israel, okay, the kingdom of God, the, the, the throne room of God. First is that the church has a king. The church is a monarchy. It's not a democracy. Uh, we don't, every four years, we don't vote on a new head of the church. It is Christ. Jesus is the eternal king. He, he reinforces this in, in Matthew before his ascension, that all authority on heaven and earth is given to him. So he is the, the, the supreme Lord of all. Uh, so the church has a king. It has a, it has a strict monarchical structure to it. You have one Lord, and you have one person that you owe all of your allegiance to. Um, and so while Jesus is called king, Jesus is addressed as the one who is the bridegroom of, uh, of the church. That doesn't mean that the Father and the Spirit are not co-regents of the church. Right? The three persons all participate. The, the operations of the Trinity are not separable. You can't split them apart. So they're present, but the Son just takes kind of a focal point in terms of kingship over the church. Okay, and so what this implies then, so if we have a king, right, so if we have a king and a kingdom, that means you have a law, okay? A king has guidelines, has, has instructions about how the kingdom should operate. And we see this here, even in the instruction with Revelation 21, that there are those that will not inherit this kingdom, those that will be cast out from this kingdom. So this is the greatest form of discipline for the kingdom is to be exiled from it. So if the church excommunicates somebody, if they say, you're not of us, that's the highest, that's the, that's the biggest uh, disciplinary measure the church can take, is to say, you're not here anymore. You're not one of us, because you're one of these categories. The cowards, the, cowards, the faithless, the detestables, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Right? This isn't referring to people that did something once. Right? These are... These people have been given over to their sin to the degree where they become identified with it. That they're not somebody that is confessional. They are not repentant. They have no shame for their sin. They have embraced their sin. And because of that, they are no longer recognized as citizens of the kingdom. Okay. Jesus unpacks his law more explicitly in, uh, in Matthew 5. Uh, so if you want to turn to Matthew 5. Okay, so we have a king. And the king has a law code for his kingdom. And Jesus makes it very clear that this law code is not, it's not brand new. It's not something that's never been heard of or seen before. It's not natural law. It is the revealed law of God. The revealed law of God reveals the person of God and his character. So the law of God is not just kind of like a separate set of things. It's like, hey, these are handy ways to live your life, 12, Jordan Peterson's 12 steps to a, a good life, right? I mean, his, Jordan Peterson's got you know, good things to say and all that, but um, it's not that, right? To, under, to know the law of God, to, to know Christ is to obey him, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So if you're a citizen of the king, if you're a subject of the king, you listen to the king, and you bother to care what the king says. When you, and part of the law code of God is uh, there is a, a root for repentance, reconciliation. That's part of it. So part of being an obedient child 
is not that you never sin, it's that when you sin, you use the king's means of grace to reconcile yourself to the king. So um, in, in Matthew 5, <clears throat> um, and also at any, at any point in time, if there's a question, just raise your hand or yell at me. Uh, Matthew 5, <clears throat> Do not, 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And prior to this is the, the Sermon on the Mount where, uh, sorry, after this, um, is when he goes through the law and says, you've heard it said, you should not murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister uh, will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering a gift on the altar and there remember you and your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. So Jesus isn't saying, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, just, you know, get along, man. Right? He says, if you think about murder, you're guilty of it. And so this is why our prayer of confession includes things that we have thought not just our deeds, but our thought lives need to be opened up to God, revealed to him. Say, look, I've even thought about breaking your law, and I've enjoyed thinking about breaking your law. Please forgive me. So the, 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 whole, the law code now is, is shown to be its fullness, right? This always was. It was always a sin. It wasn't like in the old covenant you could get away with thinking about murdering your brother. That's, that still was sin. But this is what happens when the word comes in flesh, is that it has deeper implications, and the sword of the spirit can now cut a little deeper. Because uh, Jesus now fully reveals the will of the Father. So you have the king coming in the flesh as Jesus, and he reveals the law that's always been, right? Cain was guilty of murder before he ever struck Abel, because he desired to strike Abel. And so now this is the, the way the light of revelation works, is we can now look back on the old covenant and recognize that these, these laws applied. And Jesus says, I'm fulfilling the law. It means I'm, I'm revealing everything that was already there. This, this, is, this is what it means to be faithful to the law. So that, what that means then about Christ as king is that his upholding of the law means that his entire thought life, his desires, his desires were never disordered. He never desired anything in the wrong way or at the wrong time or above the things of the Lord. He never desired anything above God. Self-care never took place over his, his time with the Lord. He was never like, Garden of Gethsemane, Let's take, let's take a 15 power nap because this praying is really stressing me out, right? Instead, he just bleeds blood. So his whole demeanor, his whole existence, all of his desires, his thoughts um, are oriented in the right direction. So this, this is the law of God. Uh, Paul reiterates the validity of, of the law in Ephesians, right? And this time, this is, I think, something that gets really easily overlooked because we're so used to hearing... Um, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Paul, Paul saying that again. Um, <clears throat> but uh, like I had a pastor I was under in North Carolina. Interestingly for him, he said this was 
um, what changed his mind on infant baptism. So like he, he became a pedo-baptist, someone who baptizes infants, because of Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. I will, I, I know where books are about the way. Uh, Ephesians. General Electric Power. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, so Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may go well with you and that you will have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger for your children, uh, but bring them in the training and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, and uh, land ought to, ought to say earth there or world. So what Paul is doing is he say this, this thing that was given to Israel, the Ten Commandments, the fourth or the fifth, depending on how you number them, uh, is children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right will go long, you, that you may live long in the land of Israel. Now it goes global. It's like everybody, Gentiles, Ephesians, and people that aren't even circumcised, same thing applies. Chil children obey your parents in the Lord. So the reason, this is a side point, but it's like the reason this pa the, uh, the pastor I was under um, was convinced that, like changed his mind is because he's like, well, how are children supposed to obey in the Lord if they're not in the Lord, right? If Paul's addressing the children, and, you know, there's all this. It's not an airtight uh, uh, argument. Argument. Thank you. Um, this is why Jenna's here. <laughs> when I have many strokes. But the the big implication here that I want us to take away is that um, we have continuity with the old covenant law. Through the new covenant, and it's and it's not rigid; it's not the same thing, but it's the glorified version of it. That now it's not just you get to inherit the land of Cana; you get to inherit the world. It will go well with you in the world, the entire cosmos, not just this strip of land in the Middle East. But the the covenant has now been globalized; it's totalizing. Um, we've already talked about the baptismal command. So we have a king, we have a law, and since the law is instituted. And the king ascends to the heavenlies, he then assigns magistrates to continue to enforce his law and to, and to uh, teach his law. Right? He gives the apostles the command to teach the law. This is, and then those apostles then create successors. Uh, in 1 Timothy, right, Paul says, Lay hands on no man hastily, but teach those that will then be fit to teach others. Okay, so the, the commands of Christ, the life in Christ, the doctrines of Jesus are to be guarded and safeguarded by faithful men. And that's to be handed off through tactile, put laying on of hands, prayer, and an actual gift is given. This is why Timothy is told, do not forsake the gifts given to you when the laying on of hands by me and the fellow presbyters, the other elders. As we lay, lay hands on Timothy, gifts was given to him. And he's actually now supposed to use those gifts to govern the church, to teach her correctly. And he will answer to God for how he does that, as we're told in Hebrews. And so, and so God, is, Jesus established Jesus, a college of magistrates to govern his church. And the distinction here is that the church governors, the pastors, the ordained ministers of the church, don't get to pick up the sword. Right? I don't chop off hands of thieves. Did you think about stealing that bread today? No finger for you, right? That's not, I don't get to do that. Probably for the better. Uh, but what I, 
what I, we are told in John 20 is that the apostles are said, told, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whoever sins you forgive will be forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain will be retained. And that's uncomfortable language, right? Because it's like, well, these are just guys. They shouldn't be given that kind of authority. I agree, right? <laughs> but they are, right? And this is, this is the weight of that office. It's like, is that the, a, a minister now will is directly gets, not that other people won't directly answer to God, but he will answer to God for other people's souls, not just his own. So if, if he is unfaithful in, in, in assuring and absolving people of sins, right? If, if someone comes to me and they're like, uh, I've done this, I want to confess this, and um, I want to know that I don't want to know that Jesus forgives me if I confess these sins. And I say, yes, you confess your sins, you're forgiven. If I say, well, you've actually got to do some extra stuff to get forgiveness, right? How about you wash my car? Why don't you cut the grass at the church, right? Read your Bible 20 times through. Uh, say, say 15 our fathers. If I start doing something that Jesus didn't tell me I can do, so someone might, might have their sins released, I'm going to have to answer to Jesus for that. He's like, hey, I had a lamb come to you that was limping along and had splotches all over it, and it asked you to clean it, and you didn't do that. That, that doesn't, that's not going to go well for a pastor that's not doing those things. So, yes, in ways it seems like disproportionate. Um, but this is, this is why Paul's like, don't lay hands on anyone hastily. Give them time. Make sure this is someone that's worthy of the gift you're going to give them, which is to, to feed the sheep of God and to watch over them, to guard the boundaries, and to make sure that they're um, being released of sins when they need to be released of them and being called to account when they're not willing to be released. If someone's continuing in sin, the pastor ought to go after them and say, please repent, come back to it, come back to Christ, be faithful to him. That's not to say you can't go to Jesus directly and confess your sins. But there is, as someone that has used uh, faithful mentors in my life to confess sins to directly and say, I've done this thing, um, and I need to know that I'm forgiven, right? Now, there's, there's counsel to be found in like, okay, well, this is a way to create godly habits to, to move out of this pattern of sin. Right? It's not just that you, have, you get to hear somebody say, Jesus forgives you. That's really good to hear someone say, Jesus forgives you. That's why every Sunday I tell you, Jesus forgives you if you've prayed this prayer of confession. Um, it's really good to hear that. But also um, to then have counsel about how to, well, how do, you, how, do you, how do I keep the law by faith, not out of my own effort, but how do I actually lean into Jesus, fall onto his arm in a, in a faithful way that would teach me how to walk correctly? Okay, so those are um, the magistrates, and uh, and the church has received this this these offices uh, is in a threefold nature. So what has seemed to emerge throughout church history is that these are a, the the holy ministry is divided into into three orders of bishop, priest, and deacon, and uh, you'll see this emerge even in a church that doesn't have you know like apostolic succession in the strict sense of the term. Right? But almost everybody's been in a church where you've got one guy that kind of does all the teaching and preaching. You've probably got a few elders around him, like other, other men that hold office in the church. So, and some, a lot of churches will call them elders. Like you'll see this pastor, elder, deacons, right? And the deacons are the ones that are primarily charged with the care of the poor and the widows and orphans. And, uh, and then the uh, elders are like those that will sit in the city gates and help give counsel and insight and to, and to calling people back into living a holy life 
and giving the pastor wisdom and counsel in his governance of the church. But the pastor ends up being the primary, the, the, the uh, visual point of unity for the church to say there's, there's one voice that's primarily doing the teaching. There's one guy that's going to primarily administer the sacraments. Right? And so um, that gets, that gets shut, that uh, manifests in some different ways. Like you'll have churches like the Anglican Communion, the Roman Catholic Church, or the Eastern Orthodox Church that will have very explicitly bishops that oversee a diocese, priests that oversee a singular parish, and deacons that are kind of the extension, like the, the hand of the bishop. Um, but then you do see this emerge in uh, Presbyterian circles, uh, Christian Reformed circles, um, the Lutheran world, where you'll, you'll still have this threefold structure, and they might not use the same terminology, but you end up seeing it kind of show up, even on accident, in a lot of places. Um, that you have uh, a visual point of unity with either, whether it's an elder that is just given more of the authority in the church, someone's called a pastor, someone's called a bishop, whatever the, the title ends up being, you end up seeing this threefold structure show up. And it's attested to throughout church history. And those terms are used ubiquitously until 1517, essentially. Well, even after, not even until after that. Um, so that, this is how typically Christ has governed his church, right? That there is, what is at least agreed upon, there is a consensus that there is an ordained ministry, whether it's, whether there's a, a divine distinction between bishops and priests or more of a functional one, right? Like this is for good order or is it God's, um, we'll get into this more um, as the weeks follow. But I just want to set that, that up for us, that this is what typically the magistrates will look like, that you'll have, um, you'll have pastor, Frequently, a session of elders that are like rulers that sit in the city gates of Israel and would hear cases and assess who was right and who was wrong. So these are going to be men that have imbibed the word of God and have grown in wisdom and can hear and, like Solomon, discern what is a wise course of action. Okay, And then the, the pastor who um, is like a sub-regent of Christ that, um, as uh, Ignatius Vaniac says, the, the presbyters, the, the pastors, the elders are... Uh, inheritors of the apostolic office, not that pastors write scripture or things like that, but that they're charged with faithfully teaching the faith, delivering the faith, handing it over, the thing that we've received, that we, we pass it on to the people, we feed the people, those sorts of things. Um, so, again, seeing continuity now between the magistrates of the kingdom and the magistrates of the church. And lastly, you have, so you have king, a law, magistrates, and citizens. <clears throat> so citizens... We talked about this already, that who's not a citizen, but who are citizens, right? Just as in Israel, um, any Jew that is circumcised is considered a citizen, or any woman who's married to a circumcised Jew or is, um, or is the daughter of a circumcised Jew, they're considered full citizens. But in Israel, you also have these categories of like God-fearers, Gentile God-fearers, um, that were allowed to just in the outer courts of the temple. They weren't circumcised, but they trusted Yahweh, the one true God, and so they would look to Israel um, and Israel, the nation kind of functioned as a priesthood for the nations. Uh, this is what Abraham was told would come of his seed, right? You will be a, uh, those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. You will be a blessing to the nations You're, through your seed. Yes, Carrie. Um, I have a question on that principle. Yeah. Uh, I'll talk. yeah. Um, so I have a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like some of my family got their children baptized. Mm-hmm. Then they would like, if they move to a different church, then they say they don't baptize kids. Mm -hmm. Like, I baptize my children, but like my niece, 
nieces and my brothers, they don't baptize because they're now with a different church. Yep. And like I want Lambie to get baptized, but Nikki's not. But like I was gonna read your article that you posted, but then I got busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like <laughs> I didn't write that. I agree with the article. I didn't have to write that one. I just don't want to take credit yeah, for somebody no, else's writing. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, why is there such different takes on it? Um, I a, just, yeah. you just talk about circumcising. Like, yes. I also have some friends that still circumcise, some people not. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the circumcision question is easy to answer because the, uh, the apostles actually met and talked about this at the Jerusalem Council that circumcision is, is no longer required as a way to. Um, be inserted into the people of God. Um, <clears throat> that circumcision is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. So uh, the cutting off of the flesh, right, that's, prim that's primarily what happens with uh, what Christ fulfills on the cross. And uh, so with baptism, um, you do have a correlation, a correspondence with baptism and circumcision in Colossians, but the, the New Covenant, the New Testament writers will actually pull on baptismal language in the Old Testament. So Paul does this with 1 Corinthians, for as many, uh, they were baptized in the sea and in the cloud when they left Egypt. So the Red Sea crossing is called a baptism. Um, in Hebrews it says, there once were many washings. Baptism, they use the same baptism language there in Hebrews. And so uh, Hebrews then takes all the Levitical ritual washings and says, those are all baptisms. And now there's just one baptism. So this is why Paul says, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Because you don't have to wash your feet every time you enter the temple. You don't have to wash your hands every time you go near somebody that died, right? You don't have to do those things because there's one baptism. And because this baptism is now paired with the giving of the Holy Spirit, it's a continual washing. It's what Jesus is washing Peter's feet. And Peter's like, well, wash my whole body, right? And Jesus says, I only have to wash your feet now. So Jesus is demonstrating what, like this kind of, whenever we confess, our baptism is actually being called upon as, uh, right, as a, as a, as a um, cleaner of our conscience. So what Peter says in, in First Peter that um, baptism now saves you, and as it corresponds to knowing the ark, um, as, for, as a as a testimony for a clear conscience. In Acts two, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, I you said a couple Sundays ago. Maybe it was last, whenever I was here. Yeah, it would have been John 3, probably. Well, yeah, you said something. You're not just going to proceed in the ground and not water it. It's going to grow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Your child, you know, baptizes a child that will grow in faith with you. Yeah. Um, so some uh, some of the concerns around baptism, some people will see that, well, it seems like, because um, so in the New Testament, you have a bunch of new converts. And so... What ends up normatively happening is you have people confess the faith and then be baptized. And so that can be used as kind of the standard paradigm. Well, you want to see that somebody has faith and then you're given baptism. So that's kind of where that's emerged from. Um, and uh, I, would, I would argue that that's, you're looking at, a, at the initiation of something new and trying to, you know, like you don't have any examples in the New Covenant, in the New Testament writings, of a Christian family um, raising children because every, it's, it's entirely foundation work. This is why the, uh, the names of the 12 apostles are put on the foundation of the new city. So while there's continuity, there's also a new thing happening. And so uh, what you do have testified like with, um, well, like in Acts 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. This promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off. And, um, or, uh, 
I'm blanking here. Well, or in Ephesians 6, um, children in the Lord are to obey their parents. And we know that from Galatians, as many as have been baptized have put on Christ. So if you're in the Lord, it means you've been baptized. So if you're a child that can obey in the Lord, your child that's been baptized would be the argument there. So, and then also just given who, who was legitimately baptized in the old covenant, everybody. I mean, if a kid was near a dead body, they were also ritually cleansed. Babies, I, I don't think the babies were set on the shore of the Red Sea and the adults walked through. Like, well, I guess we got to make new babies, right? So, um, so in my, you know, in my mind, it's very clear. It's like, well, obviously, Paul doesn't have a problem with infant baptism because he just said everybody, all the infants in Israel were baptized in the Red Sea. Um, so for me, that's like case closed. But I, I uh, you know, I was raised a Baptist. And so I, I, I do understand why there are hesitations, why people feel like, well, we want to hear a clear profession of faith. That tends to be the arguments um, Kate, I don't know if, you, if there's a, a fair assessment of why people would be credo-baptist. They want to yeah, hear a professional I think faith. that's probably a fair assessment of the general reasons why Baptists are Baptists. There, there are other Baptists for the different reasons. Yeah. Cade is still a Baptist, so we'll see how he's doing in a few weeks. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, they tend to want to see a profession of faith. Um, uh, Jesus seems to indicate that the paradigm, this is where I would push on that, it's like the paradigm for faith are infants. But infants are brought to Jesus in Luke, and he says, you've got to be like this to enter the kingdom. Don't keep babies away from you, because they're actually better at faith than anybody else is. Um, Psalm 8, uh, that the cries of the infant are like wounds against Satan and his enemy, and the enemies of God. So there's something even about the cries of a baby. Um, like if a baby can have, uh, like a, a, so if you take a baby away from its mother, the minute it's born, it will have it will suffer from um, separation issues. You have scarred it by being separated from its mother, so it's already bonded with its mother and father in the womb. And so, in my mind, if a baby can bond with a father and mother in the womb, and God's more of a person than a human, then babies have faith. And, uh, and it seems, and the warning is: don't cause them to stumble. Not don't teach them to be faithful, but anyone who causes a little one to stumble will have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the water. So it seems like God grants um, infants, babies, uh, an, an inclination of faith towards him. Now, they, can't, or they don't have language. Right? They can't say, I trust Jesus from the minute they're born. But John the Baptist can kick in the womb when he meets Jesus in the womb. And uh, if we're going to be consistent with justification by faith alone, if you're saved by faith alone, in my mind, that means at least infants that die in infancy are given faith. Otherwise, they can't be justified. And so if we're going to be consistent with, um, with what it means to be a Protestant, which is sola fide, then I think we, we need to apply that to babies, at least the babies that don't make it. Is that helpful? Yeah, it was off topic. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. I just, it just happens to be Matt's favorite topic. So I'm <laughs> thinking, like, it's always on topic. Like, I baptized my children, but Ashley was baptized as a, as a teenager when she came into faith. She yeah. talked about baby because I wanted her to ride on my faith and know that this is what we do. Yeah. They do. So what they do, because I, the people who've done, done it in our family not baptizing, yeah. they do, like, a dedication. So is what they call it. They like dedicate and say, I will raise my child in faith, but until they can come to their own faith, then, then they can decide to be baptized. But I've never heard it 
like explained the way you just said, kind of just blew my mind about how like you have to have faith to get into heaven, yeah. and if an infant dies, obviously they have that. Like I've never heard it explained that way, but that's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Tyler. Something clicked in my mind, like researching this for myself, coming to this conviction, was I forget who it was. Now I made the argument of so you look at the old covenant. We're in the new covenant now. So the old covenant, they would circumcise yeah. their sons. Well, they didn't say like, "Oh, wait until you say you believe in God, circumcise you." Yeah. It's like it just—it was. So this is just the new, better covenant, so it's fulfilled. So why wouldn't? Why wouldn't it just make? Especially with the Jews, why wouldn't it make sense? Yeah. Just to baptize your kids. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're, if if there's such a dramatic shift in sociology, right? If the new covenant is. Um, everybody's on their own. Like that's, I'm exaggerating, but it's like, if it's everyone's on their own, why is that never brought up in any of the language about what makes a new covenant new? So like the whole book of Hebrews is what makes a new covenant new? At no point was it like, your kids are out, <laughs> right? Um, so that's, that's like, you gotta, you gotta give me a reason why kids are out because the apostles don't give me a reason why the kids are out. Um, and you think they'd make that a little clearer given uh, the, especially just even the whole ancient world's understanding of household. And, and, for, and for the Deuteronomic exhortation to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to have it on their foreheads and on the doorposts. Um, if that's the kind of society that the kingdom of heaven is, it's not that children of Christians naturally receive the gifts of the kingdom because they're born of a faithful household. It's because God has made promises to his people. Right. So this is the, because sometimes it'll be a strong man, against infant baptism is, well, you're arguing that, you know, um, it's like blue eyes, right? It's like, if you've got a dad that has blue eyes, you get blue eyes, and so if you're a dad that loved Jesus, you love Jesus. Um, no, but it, it does seem that, that God does work through households and that God has made promises like in Acts 2, this promises for you and for your children. Um, and in the, the, there's seven um, baptisms in Acts, uh, this is an old, uh, my former presiding minister, may he rest in peace, uh, Greg Strawbridge, uh, who presided over my ordination. He, he would give this argument a lot. He's like, you got seven household, you got seven baptisms in Acts. Um, all but two of them are households. One of them is a guy who's a magician that doesn't seem to. Oh, one of them's a one of them's a guy that's a magician that ends up apostatizing, and the other one is a eunuch who doesn't have a household. Everything else, every other time someone comes to faith and there's a baptism, the household's baptized with them. So there's some, there's just, there's something happening there as well. Uh, okay, so we'll move on now to what is the temple. I'll try to move with a little bit more haste. That was the chunkiest section on my outline, anyways. So we should be able to um, thread the needle a little more quickly. So um, we'll look at Ephesians two, since we're in Ephesians already, or I was in Ephesians six. Um, Ephesians two. Ephesians 2, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter again um, because the Bible is good and we should want to hear it. Uh, Ephesians 2, so we're going, to, we're going to listen for the church as a temple. Church as a temple. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, sorry, I'll, let me just wrap up the kingdom thing. So the reason baptism though is important here is that baptism is your, like your citizenship card. Okay? That's not to say people can, right, everyone's like, thief on the cross, right? Yes, okay, faith is what is required, right? but ordinarily, baptism is necessary. Right? So if you trust Jesus, there should be no reason you're not being baptized, right? And so, uh, so baptism is 
is the seal of the Holy Spirit on you that you are a child of God. It is God putting the triune name on you. For as many as have been baptized, have put on Christ. You want to be in Christ. And so get that baptism. Okay, so that's that's your membership of the kingdom. <clears throat> Citizenship. So we got the king, the law, the magistrates, and the citizens. Okay, the temple. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Okay, so we see another thread of continuity between the, God and the, old, between the people of God in the Old Covenant and the people of God in the New Covenant. They're being identified with the temple. This is a new temple, right? And Jesus himself identifies his body as the temple. He tells them, this, this, I will destroy this temple and in three days raise it up. Right? Because he's referring to his body. And so if his body is the temple, if he is the chief cornerstone, anyone united to his body is in the temple. And we are individually temples, as seen in 1 Corinthians 6.19, when it says, do not bond yourself in sexual immorality, because don't you know you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> so there is an individual aspect of temple templing and a corporate aspect of templing. So the, the primary identity, though, is that the entire assembly, the people of God, is the temple. And because you are a living stone in that temple, you get to participate in that identity individually as well. 
And so if that's the case, if this is the paradigm, then the wisdom gleaned from what the temple was, what the temple is, is a, gets analog, anal, analogically applied to us. So by analogy, right, it's not the same thing. We're not slaughtering sheep in the church on Sundays um, unless we're having a cookout, right? But we're not killing sheep. I'm not, I'm not splattering you with hyssop branches and blood. So it's not the exact same. Something does change. This is, again, the book of Hebrews primarily deals with this. It's like, this is new and better because now you can offer perpetual offerings as a human, right? So in the, in the old covenants, um, well, let's, uh, before you get carried away here. So, um, so we'll look at the Solomonic, if you look at the Solomonic temple and the Mosaic tabernacle, this ends up becoming uh, kind of our, our fodder, our leaf mold that our understanding of the new covenant temple grows out of. So in the temple, you have priests, which are palace servants. Right? These are the ones that offer sacrifice on behalf of the people and that live before the face of God on behalf of Israel. So you have a particularized priesthood, but they are supposed to be representative. The Levitical tribe is representatively a priesthood for the entire nation, which is a priest to the nation. So Israel as a people is a, is a, is a priesthood. It's a royal priesthood. So that's why Peter uses that language in his epistle, is uh, the church is a royal priesthood because Israel was a royal priesthood. You had a particular group of priests that um, uh, manifested that identity uniquely in the Levitical priesthood, but it was a general identity that they were supposed to be priests. Uh, oh, there was something else I just thought of. Um, shoot. It's gone forever. Um, it was going to be really good too. It's going to change everything. Um, anyways, so um, yeah, I got nothing. Okay, um, and so, but the church takes up this this role, right? And uh, one of the ways the church does this is in our, our life of prayer. So, um, oh, this was it. Okay, so the priests. The priest, uh, when, it, when an offering is brought in, the priest lays his hands on the offering, and the offerer, the, per, the worshiper, lays their hand on the animal. They lean into it and identify themselves with the animal. Okay, so Old Covenant worship, this is the big change. Old Covenant worship is animal form, is animalistic. Okay, the animals are the analogy for people. We'll cover this on Sunday uh, for day six of creation, that humans and animals are made on the same day because land animals are the primary analogy for human beings. Right? So this is, uh, this is why we can domesticate some, certain land animals because they are supposed to be co-laborers with our exercise of dominion uh, and they and then we can, like the Proverbs tell us to glean certain wisdom from different animals and their different attributes. Right? So the human, the worshiper was identified with the animal so you have a vicarious animal that goes into the presence of God on your behalf. So whether it's given as a sin offering uh, or is given an ascension offering in which the whole animal is burned and ascends into God's presence. So now you vicariously can stand before God because this animal has died on your behalf and ascended in a pleasing sense to God before his face. Um, now what happens is because you're baptized, baptism becomes a kind of anointing. Now. Okay, So uh, in the Old Covenant, a uh, priest had anointings put on them to initiate them into the priesthood at the age of 30, which is a sidebar. It's like, I think it's a good, there's a good argument to generally not ordain men until they're 30. Um, because of the priesthood being initiated at 30, 
I think there's 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 a good, good wisdom there. Um, so, but anyways, this, this is just a side point. Um, <clears throat> but the, this is how you're initiated into the royal priesthood as a Christian. So by being baptized now, um, you're identified and you're you're called holy by God. So now you can go before God's face and you can offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So the altar is four. There's a four-horned altar in the old covenant temple. Is a representative of the earth. The bronze altar. Bronze is uh, earth-ish. Right? It's, it's like glorified, cauterized earth. And so, the four-horned altar is a microcosm of the earth itself. Okay. So I wish I, wish I had a whiteboard. Um, my this will be the whiteboard. So, imagine this is a, our temple. Okay. So it's a rectangle. You've got the bronze altar. You've got the sea, the wash, the bronze basin, the washing laver. And then you've got the holy place. So only priests go to the holy place. Jews can come into the outer court here and offer things on the bronze, give things to the priest for the bronze altar. Then you've got the holy place with the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense. And then right after the altar of incense behind the veil is the holy of holies, which is a perfect cube, just like the um, new city, the new Jerusalem, when it descends. Okay? That what that's demonstrating is the holy of holies is the totalizing force now. So... In the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest goes once a year. <clears throat> so what that is demonstrating, right, for them, they're going in like this, okay? But what you're supposed to recognize is the west to east orientation. Let me make sure I get that right. West to east. No, the east to west. So they start in the east and they go west. Um, is a reversal of the Garden of Eden. So in Eden, they're kicked out, right? John Steinbeck's east of Eden. They're kicked out. And uh, anytime somebody sins, Cain is then kicked out further east. Okay, so Adam and Eve go a little bit east. Cain has to go way far east. The priest undoes that. So anytime the priest moves this way, he's undoing the defilement of the garden. And he's restoring the Edenic situation to a degree. So there's that element. There's also this. It's also ascension. Okay? The bronze altar then can be seen as you have the earth. You have the firmament, and you have the highest heavens. Okay? And so this is a three-tiered nature of creation. The earth, the firmament, and the highest heavens. Right? That's why there's a veil before the Holy of Holies. There's a firmament that means a boundary that needs to be crossed to access God's presence. And Jesus tears that veil, meaning that now anybody that's baptized can access that presence by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Okay? So because you have the name of Jesus on you as your high priest, you can now access this. <clears throat> this is what it means for the church to be a temple. So this, a similar kind of paradigm now can be understood that now the earth is the bronze altar. You live on the earth. You're ignited by the fire of the spirit. And so you can now offer pleasing incense to the father before his face. Um, and this tends to be understood in prayers primarily, right? So you want to think about worship as basically an hour of praying. Right? That's what we're doing. We are praying. The temple is a house of prayer. Right? And those prayers come in a variety of shapes. We have kind of what we understand as typical prayers in our series of collects and intercessory prayers. We pray to our Father. We pray a prayer of confession. But we also have a couple psalms. Psalms are prayers. We have readings of scripture, which is a prayerful act. And we have a sermon, which is a uh, taking of God's word and um, adorning it and chewing on it and then um, serving up. Right? It's like... It's like the hearing God's word is like you go out and you eat fruit directly off the tree, and then the sermon's kind of like a fruit salad 
where this, the, the fruit is prepared into a different shape. Maybe a pie would be a better example. Um, again, that's, that, well, that, that makes it sound like the sermon's better than the Bible, and it's not true. Uh, I, find, I find a better analogy. This well, is what I should... <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, yeah, so we'll... So with this, uh, another, just another quick note then on the temple is that uh, the church is uh, the imprint of heaven on earth. Okay, so the temple was a heavenly pattern put on earth. So the temple is heaven on earth. And this is why in our Father we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so in the gathered worship service is when we ascend into heaven and we receive the blueprints of the heavenly world of Christ and his will. And then we bring it back into our world and we heavenize earth. We colonize the earth. This is the temple aspect that is a heavenization of the earth. It is where the priesthood exercises its priestly functions. It's where a sacrifice is given. Prayers are offered. Um, the ceremonies, the, right, the calendar of Israel is embodied in Christ. So what was Passover becomes Easter. What was the Feast of Booths becomes Pentecost, right? Uh, so the, the calendar now goes from being lunar-shaped to sun-shaped, S-O-N, uh, sun-shaped. That now the church calendar is based on the life of Christ, not the life of the moon, right? The, the Israel's calendar went off of the lunar cycle, and now the church calendar follows the cycle of the sun, the greater light, evening to morning. Um, so those are the temple aspects. Lastly, the olive tree, Romans 11. Uh, Romans 11, so... Romans 11. Starting in verse 11. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? This is talking about the Israelites that have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. Now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole patch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, through a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief. But if you, but you stand by faith, do not be arrogant. But be aware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree... And against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own? 
Okay, so um, Israel is the cultivated olive tree. The Gentiles are wild branches from the uncultivated olive tree that Jesus grafts out of the nations and puts onto the one tree. So you have a, a singular organic uh, life in Christ. Right? And the, uh, the olive tree is particularly being used because it shows up all over the place. Right? So the first thing, the first plants that grow in the garden are fruit-bearing trees. The olive would fall into that category. Right? Um, and partaking of one tree faithfully is what would have grown Adam and Eve into wisdom, into kingship, and into union with God. If they had faithfully partaken of the one tree they were told to. And then these faithful roots of this one tree show up in Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jesus, Paul, etc. Right? These are the, the, but the patriarchs themselves are, are seen as kind of the faithful roots. Right? That the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's who God keeps identifying himself with. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the faithful roots of the people of God, the one tree. Um, olive wood is used in the tabernacle and the temple construction. Olive oil is used in the anointing of sick, the anointing of priests, kings, and prophets. Um, the olive leaf is the first fruit of the new creation after the flood. The dove retrieves an olive leaf to demonstrate God has made peace with earth after the flood. Uh, olive oil is what glorifies the bread and the grain offering. So this is why it is the olive tree. And the olive tree embodies what Israel is supposed to be. The olive tree is a priestly tree. It is a glorified tree. It's a glory tree. This is... Right, olive oil is gold. It is liquid glory. It symbolizes the spirit. This is why it's used still in the anointing of the sick. Uh, in James, we've talked about this before, but if you're sick, call in the elders and have them anoint you with oil and pray for you. This is an ordinary means by which God um, will deliver either healing or confession of sin, or uh, if neither thing occur, it'll be God saying, my grace is sufficient for you in your suffering. Um, this olive tree is a singular tree, right? There is only one tree of God. God does not have an orchard of a bunch of different kinds of trees. There's not a bunch of rivers that go to the top of a mountain. It is one tree, one mountain. There's one way up. There's one cloud. There's one sea. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God, one Father of all. And so there's, this is um, the exclusivity of belonging to Christ is that if, if you want to have God as your father, you must have the church as your mother. Right? You must be in the cultivated tree. You must be grafted in by Christ um, and, and remain there uh, in faith, clinging to Christ. John, this is what John 15 says. John, Jesus says, I am the vine. Whoever abides in me has life. Whoever does not abide in me is cut off and burned because he has no life in him. Right, so the faithful members of the vine are those that abide in Christ, meaning that they trust Jesus. That's what it means to abide in Christ. Um, and this united body is actively tended to God does not just plant this tree. He's like, I'm going to slap some branches on here and back off. He's constantly telling. He's like, look, it's not too late. There are people that get cut off and get to be grafted back in. It's not just like boom, 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 right? As long as you just breath in your lungs, you are able to be grafted into this tree. This is what Paul prays for his own people, the Jews that have rejected Jesus, that one day maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll come back. I give up. Paul says that he would give up his own salvation for the sake of his kinsmen because he wants them to belong to this tree. Okay, so we, this is, um, when we're thinking about people in our lives that are not part of the olive tree, that are hate the olive tree, would say horrible things about the olive tree, there's, there's always hope. Like God is slow and he's merciful and he's patient and uh, he desires that the wicked would convert. 
that God, uh, this is First Peter again, that um, God desires that all would come to him. Like he's, he is the great physician, and he wishes that all sick, wretched sinners would come and be joined into a living tree and have life and receive life. Okay, so what this means then is that we don't want to forsake the assembly, Hebrews. Right? Don't forsake the gathering together because the gathering together is the primary way you practice abiding in the branches. You practice abiding in the olive tree because this olive tree organically has branches all over the earth, right? And, uh, and this isn't directly from the Bible, but I think it's a faithful analogy to recognize various local assemblies and various broader traditions as branches of this olive tree. And you really don't want to be somebody that doesn't belong to a branch. Right? The leaves apart from the branch don't last very long. And so you want to make sure that uh, you're faithfully abiding under the kingdom as Christ has established it with a, with a, a magistrate that is faithful, um, that the, where the law, the word of God is preached. Right? Okay. Um, so hopefully this is demonstrated that the church is the one people of God and that has existed since creation. That God has always had a redeemed people. That there have always been those that have been rescued from the fall of sin. There are those that have heard his word and trusted it. Those that have submitted to his kingdom, have worshipped in his temple, and partaken of the life in his tree. Uh, so in the following weeks, uh, we'll actually, we're going to further clarify what the church ought to look like. So some more practical, uh, more concrete ways in which the church ought to live and exist in light of these realities. Um, so the the, one of the, the earliest uh, ecumenical creed that is uh, adopted in, after Nicaea um, confesses that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And, uh, and so what we're going to discuss then is that we've seen the oneness of this church this week and, uh, and in the weeks to follow the holy Catholic and apostolic nature of the church and how the Reformation has then taken those markers and and then filtered them through um, the church is the place where the word is preached, the sacraments are administered, and discipline is enacted. So how Holy Catholic Apostolic will also be filtered through this reformational lens of, um, of the word, the sacraments, and discipline. Okay, so this, and this is kind of the DNA that we want to do theology with. We want to start with the Bible, then we want to start with the patristics, the, the earliest Christians, how they received our, our holy scriptures and then how the reformers um, uh, purified some elements with the gospel and some things have been added to the apostolic tradition. Um, and so just to give us some definitions so you don't walk away thinking I'm trying to make you all Romanists, right? She is holy, meaning that she is upheld by God and animated by his life and word, right? that Jesus washes the church with the word consistently and calls her holy because she is made in his image the church is Catholic because she exists throughout the ages and in continuity with the faith once delivered. Right? The, the Catholic Church, what was what is believed, confessed, and taught in all places at all times by the church. She is apostolic, meaning she believes, teaches, and confesses the faith that was deposited by the apostles and testified to by the consensus of the church at all times and in all places. So there's interplay between these definitions, especially Catholic and apostolic, because what is Truly Catholic is whatever is truly apostolic. Okay? So the, the Catholic faith is the faith that was once delivered, the faith that is handed over to, to the church that she is to uphold as a, the pillar and ground of truth. That is what it means to be a Catholic. And so one of my 
secret, uh, you know, missions in life is for Protestants to reclaim the term Catholic and uh, and say like we are we are also Catholics. We are Bible Catholics. We are Catholics that our fundamental um, allegiance is to the Word of God, held to by faith, and uh, and that we we try to abide in the stream of the church. Okay. Uh, any questions before we wrap up, Carrie? Um, I do think people get very confused and don't understand that word. Yes. Even when we do like the Yeah. It's not the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I, I've tried to do this with my own. And it's not that I don't think uh, Roman Catholics, I don't think Roman Catholics aren't part of the church. It's just they aren't the church exclusively. Right. And so, um, so I'm not, when I, when I say things like we should, they shouldn't call themselves Catholic, they should call themselves Romanists. Or papists, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but I, what I think is like a more helpful clarification because they don't get to own the word Catholic, right? Just like the Eastern Orthodox Church, they don't get a copyright on the word Orthodox. We are uh, Catholic Orthodox Christians if we maintain and re- have received the faith, um, the apostolic faith, right? If we receive uh, uh, the faith once delivered by the apostles, right? we are also Orthodox Catholics. And uh, and so it'd be really great to see that language get detached from sectarianism of like, well, just these people get to own those terms. And we've got, we get like, we're like second class citizens as Protestants. So we, we have to find other ways to describe ourselves. Um, so there's, I, you know, I recognize that if I talked like that, if I was like, yes, we are Catholic Orthodox at Unity Union Church. And I just walked around town talking like that. Nobody would know what I was saying because there's an established like uh, vocabulary they have to work with. But in these settings, um, there's a little bit more freedom where we all know each other, and uh, I have time to clarify what I mean. You know, but I would like to see that change. Maybe by the time I die, at least in Walla County, it might be a little different if I keep shouting about it. Any other questions? Right. Yeah. So next week um, we'll start with holy. What it means for the church to be holy, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll pray. Thank you, Jenna. And uh, and as we're talking about holy, we'll talk about discipline. Okay. So for the church to be holy, it means for it to be um, a, dis- a disciple, a disciplined uh, body of Christ. <clears throat> so that'll be, that'll be next week, is holy and discipline paired together. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church and the blessing she is to the world. And I pray that you would uh, revive her and reform her, especially in the church in Maine, as she has uh, been degraded and derided and has lost her stamina and potency that you'd give us faith and eyes to see your power in our humble estate. In Jesus' name, amen.